Hello, everyone, and welcome to the State of Sport Management, a podcast with Dr. Matthew Hummel coming from the University of Cincinnati in Cincinnati, Ohio. Here's this week's episode. Welcome, everybody, back to what could be considered season two here of State of Sport Management. Now that we've gotten settled in for the fall semester, we are kicking off with our first episode. Um, not exactly sure when this will go up, but hopefully soon. But to kind of give an update for the listeners out there, I have recently transitioned from Texas Tech University to University of Cincinnati. So we are migrating over, obviously from a significant distance, but also getting used to new technology and new technical support personnel here that have been awesome. But we are able to now get everything back up and running. And I want to kick off with doing something a little bit different than what we did on season one. There has been a topic that is capturing a ton of people's attention and is this massively growing field called eSport. And I wanted to try to find someone that was an expert in that area, whether that was research or practicality to talk about eSport, give us a little bit of basic background on what it is, what it means, how it's changing the field of sport management, and then what research has been done, what hasn't been done. And so um, that's why I've decided to bring in Dr. Sam Schmidt here from Wilkes University. Sam and I have known each other for a long time, and I thought he would be the perfect person to be able to speak to the sport management field on eSports. So, Sam, how's it going? It's going well. I uh, appreciate the uh, kind words, and I'm excited. I'm looking forward to it. I got to say, it was my dream when podcasts started to become popular to be on a podcast. So, <laughs> one of my lifelong goals has just been accomplished. So I appreciate the opportunity. Just put it on the CV. I'll definitely get you hired or promoted or get raises anytime you need it. <laughs> there you go. Um, so obviously we don't know what's going on, but this background of Sam's a big Green Bay Packers fan. I'm a big Chicago Bears fan and they're kicking off the season tonight. So that gives you an idea when we're recording this. So one of us will be in the doldrums of uh, frustration and stress about our team. And one of us will be slightly less pessimistic than we are today. So let's hope. <laughs> rivalry game, anything yeah, can happen. It'll be interesting, especially if last year's a good parameter of how things will go. Uh, but to kind of get us started here, talking about eSport, new area here in sport management. Like what is eSport, Sam? For those that aren't familiar with that, I mean, they've heard of the topic but don't know much about it. How would you describe it? Yeah, I think that is as basics, the easiest way to understand is just competitive video gaming. Uh, we've all played video games in our lifetime, and we've gotten to a point where the community has been able to come together and start having competitions. I mean, all the way back in 1970, we saw a few competitions. Now, with the advent of the internet, all of a sudden, we started to see competitions, tournaments, all that stuff come together, and it's really taken off in the past decade or so. Sponsors, coaches, uh, psychologists, all those things started to become part of it, but it's at its basis, it's competitive video gaming. Now, when I when we go into some of the literature and stuff, that we're doing, a, we're seeing a good job of people defining it. And I really liked uh, what Newzu, they have a big report you can find online. They said professional level competitive gaming in an organized format, tournament or league, with a specific goal prize, such as winning a championship title or prize money. And I think that the added language in there really kind of separates it from just playing video games or streaming video games. It's it's kind of that organized format, Mm. that tournament at leagues that we see, that's where we can really start to define something as an esport. And if you look at what Funk did and Holden um, in 2017 did in Cunningham, when they're defining esport, they're really trying to bring in that formalized aspect of a league, a structure, a tournament, stuff like that. Yeah. And just thinking back on my undergraduate experience, I remember I had a class that was, I don't think it was an intro to sport management, but it was kind of, um, essentially function that way within at, at Grand Valley State Worth. Great professor of mine, John Kilborn, he talked about essentially what makes something a sport and talks a ton about the importance of organization because I would I would venture to say any faculty member 40 and under, and I, I'm being very conservative there, has probably played some video games in their life, whether it was very basic uh, pre-internet where you're just playing with your brother, your sister, your cousins, your parents, whoever. And it's just like a two person type situation to where obviously there was no structure at all. 
to now eSport is, has essentially that big component to me when I think of it is that organizational backbone. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I would agree with that. And, you know, going back to the definition of sport and what is that? And back in 2014, I did a project for SMA. My very first doctoral presentation was on eSport. And so I had to go back and look at definitions of what a sport is and kind of fit it in there. And it always came down to the difference between the sport and play was that organized concept. And I mean, we've seen it to kind of give you a trend um, or something we're seeing now. 2019, we're expected to see $1.09 billion in revenue for the esport industry, uh, topping 1 billion for the first time. 2018 was 108, or it was 865 million, which was a 32% increase from 2017. So when we say it's got some structure and stability. It's absolutely does that. Um, and it's come mostly through media rights, advertising and sponsorship. So those are the big uh, media, the revenue drivers for eSport. And so kind of going from that, how, how would someone watch eSport? There are some pretty good websites. Uh, if you look at twitch.tv, actually owned by Amazon, bought in 2014 for almost a billion dollars. Oh, interesting. I didn't yeah. know that. Um, and so they have, it's just you, you go twitch.tv and you can find any game you could possibly want. They, they've got FIFA, they've got NBA 2K, they've got League of Legends. You click on the game and you find anywhere between one and thousands of people just playing it online. They stream their computer. So there's a camera on their computer that basically shows what they're doing in real time. And oftentimes they'll be there with a picture of their face and um, talking to the people that are watching talking to people they call subscribers who pay $5 per month to subscribe and get special features, but they'll be talking to them um, and interacting with them. So Twitch is probably the biggest. That's the one that I've been watching uh, for probably the past eight years now. YouTube gaming is also one that um, you can find on there. I usually use YouTube for my tournaments. Like if there's a big eSport tournament, there will be this one. Uh, the League of Legends is coming up this fall. That one is a fun one because it uh, allows you to move forwards and backwards. So if I'm a little bit late, I can restart the stream and go to the beginning. Or if I just miss, I want to see a play again, kind of like a DVR, I can rewind it if I want to. So that's pretty awesome. And as of course, YouTube's owned by Google. So we've already got Amazon and Google. A new one that just showed up was Mixer. And the reason they're getting a lot of uh, praise and buzz is due to Ninja. He's a popular streamer, uh, the most popular streamer. For those that don't know, he was big in Fortnite. And he makes, oh man, he makes a lot of money. I think, uh, I want to say one odd video said um, 10 million a year. I could be completely wrong on that, but it's at least 10 million a year. Um, he got signed for a $50 million deal to Mixer, which is owned by Microsoft. They're trying to get into the streaming game. So Google, Amazon, Microsoft all have their own little platforms. And as of right now, they're all free to watch, which is probably the accessibility and how so many people have gotten into this. Just you can go on, pop on and, you know, watch a 30 second ad and then you can uh, watch people play video games for hours on end. So it's a really cool concept. Uh, we'll start to see it be monetized a little bit more than it is now. But for right now, you've got three pretty awesome idea ways to watch it on the internet. Now you can also, we've seen ESPN Plus, they've started streaming games. I know you talked to me, TBS, I want to say on a Friday night, you were watching eSport. Yeah. And Good old TBS sound like an old person. Like <laughs> and then, of course, ESPN's getting into it, which is interesting considering that ESPN a couple years ago was very anti-esports. So we're starting to see it shift to right, traditional TV from the internet, true TV. Um, and it's interesting to see the kind of community come back and say, you know, why do we need to be by going on TV? We have a good platform on the internet. So to see that battle happen um, over the past few years and then finally come to TV and um, I haven't seen the TV numbers, but I'm interested to see how it's transitioned to TV woodwork. Mm. Yeah. And so that's the big thing is like Twitch. I, I've, I've spent a little bit of time on Twitch, but the prominent time seems to be it's through an app on my phone. Um, but I know you can watch it online on a traditional web browser on your, on your laptop or desktop, but going back to something you said about Ninja. So Mixer's spending, I don't know, they're like essentially buying streaming rights, but not for a league, but for just an individual. Yes. Is, is this the first time any, anyone's ever done something like this? To my knowledge, yes. And 
it's what's we've seen from streamers and it's just like people who create YouTube videos and channels is they have a set time where they go on every day. They've got their followers, they've got their watchers and there's a lot of anxiety when it comes to all of a sudden, Oh no, I had 20,000 people watching me last week to down to 10,000 people. Now, how am I going to reinvent myself? And so what's interesting about this mixer deal with Ninja is that it brings um, stability now, instead of, you know, having that financial hit from 20,000 to 10,000 viewers, he's got that $50 million in his pocket. So that stability can really help him. But yeah, you're right. That was purely a um, non-team, uh, non-league uh, move that Mixer made. Um, we did see a league, Overwatch League. Um, they're owned by Blizzard, if you know World of Warcraft and such. They are. They just signed a two-year, ninety million dollar deal with both Twitch and ESPN. So we're starting to. Oh, see, interesting. Yeah, we're starting to see leagues do it. I haven't seen if Two K is doing it or not, but I imagine they're pretty much on ESPN. We're starting to see leagues um, buy the media rights for um, to online either Twitch or YouTube or ESPN Plus or Mixer, which I think is kind of you know we saw it in traditional sport these huge media rights. I think that's kind of where we're going with it online is, okay, I won't put my product on YouTube TV. I'll just put it on twitch.tv. And that's the only place to watch it. Yeah. And so that's why I think the Ninja thing is so interesting because TV rights have traditionally been about an organization trying to gain viewership through avid NBA, NFL, WNBA, whoever NWSL fans and therefore, then it's like, well, if you want to watch NWSL, you need to get a subscription with our with our provider. Where Mixer is doing something interesting is they're only getting, they're only purchasing Ninja. And so now everything will just be on his. Now, obviously, he doesn't really, I'm assuming he doesn't cross over into other video games. Is it just uh, Fortnite? No, he, he will do something every okay. once in a while. Um, you know, it's, and it really goes on what kind of the popular games are at the time. Uh, so Fortnite is what we call a battle royale. 50 people get dropped onto a map and they basically have a King of the Hill style where the last one remaining wins. And so we've seen a lot of games basically try to mirror that, make it a little bit better, add some different variations to it. But that's the most popular one. And so I think there was another one, Apex, he played for a little bit. Ended up going back to Fortnite because he knew that was kind of where his base um, yeah. was. But a lot of these players will play one, maybe two games just to kind of diversify, get new play, get new people to watch. Um, now, if they're going pro, they're pretty much going to play the one game. You know, they're going to play League of Legends for 12 to 14 hours a day. They're going to play Overwatch for 12 to 14 hours a day. Now they'll, of course, dabble in some other games like uh, Team Fight Tactics or over um, or Dota 2 for a little bit. But they're primarily on that uh, main game if they're being professional. But these professional streamers, not necessarily eSport athletes, these streamers are going to be kind of doing whatever they want, whatever's hot at the time to get the most viewers. Yeah, and going back to when you were saying 2K, we're talking about like NBA 2K. There's also what Madden has their traditional NFL game yeah. obvious connection to like an ESPN mm -hmm. um, that they would want to make that purchase. It'll be interesting to see if, if they end up having streaming rights there, if someone else is going to try to create maybe a sports centric, uh, traditional sport centric esport channel or something along those lines. But I think the provider thing is really interesting because we have this one athlete. It'd be kind of like if LeBron, hired a filming crew to film all of his games and somehow had the rights of the NBA and just sold a TV package where people could watch him at all times. Uh, even when he's playing, when he's not playing all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. Him practicing, <laughs> yes. that, you know, that'd probably be pretty appropriate. It was just him in the gym, practicing, interacting with people, watching him on the internet. People um, would definitely watch that. <laughs> exactly. And I don't think we're too far off from that. Um, you know, cause that's part of his brand. He can kind of mold that brand off the court. And if he's just shooting around and, you know, talking to people, he could, he could make some money that way. So I, I imagine one day we see it. And so we've already chatted a little bit about this, but I mean, what games are involved in eSport? Like, I know this is a, we could never endly name off things, but how about start with like, what are the most popular games that are going on right now for eSport viewership? So the most popular and has been for about 
eight years is a League of Legends. And now this is a type of game that's called a multi is called a MOBA multi. Um, oh, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's basically all these players. Um, there's five on five. They have their little character and they try to defeat each other's turrets and ultimately destroy the other nexus. Um, they've got their specific positions and they've got a captain who kind of calls what's going to happen and such like that. That's the most popular at 347.4 million hours watched last year. Wow. The next the next one is um, Counter Strike Go, which has been the most second the, the, the second most popular esport for that same time frame, uh, at 274.9 million viewers. So about 75 less million hours watched than League of Legends. Dota 2 is very similar to League of Legends. That one's at 250, uh, and then Overwatch is where you see start to see the drop off. They're coming at fourth at 101 million. Now, what you notice about all those is those aren't traditional sport focused at all. Those often include, um, you know, I'm not talking about FIFA or NBA 2K, where a someone who watches basketball constantly can get in and see what's going on and pick up pretty quickly. We're talking about these kind of fantasy games that um, really have nothing to do with traditional sport other than a few connections here or there. I looked and actually saw that FIFA comes in number 16th in terms of hours watched. Um, you know, that's the first traditional sport um, game we see on the list. Number 16 at 8.5 million hours watched. So it's way down there. And um, same with NBA 2K League. Um, Madden is another one that we kind of see as pretty popular. But those games, for all intents and purposes right now, are not the popular games that we're seeing um, in esports. It is kind of those fantasy ones with characters and swords and guns and all those things. Which is so interesting to me because when you think of footprint, especially in traditional sports, soccer has the greatest footprint. It's a relatively cheap sport to play. It's popular in all kinds of countries, high SES, low SES. And basketball, I'd say, is probably, um, obviously this isn't right up my alley, but I'd also say basketball and soccer are going to be two of your more popular sports worldwide. Mm -hmm. And they don't even crack, it sounds like, the top 15 of esport viewership and participation. And to me, that just speaks to the the brand, like, the engine behind esport is not tied to the traditional sport. Like you said, you have these very fantasy-based games that are really the energy that's pushing this. It's it's not pushed by your traditional sport that you consume on TV. Absolutely. Now, I will say, if there is a, a traditional sport that's going to start to make the climb, I would imagine it's going to be FIFA. Uh, okay. As you- as you mentioned, it is a global soccer is a global game, so it'll be then easy for people to just pick up. You know, I can watch a FIFA game and know exactly what's going on. And also, we see a lot of professional athletes here in America like to play FIFA. Um, a lot of people when we were in college, I remember I had buddies that played FIFA and they were on the football team, and for some reason they loved FIFA. Uh, and so we see a lot of FIFA being played. And there's tournaments across the globe where they actually have kind of a World Cup of FIFA, and so they bring in people from different nations and all that. Uh, I've never watched it, but I saw a documentary on it that was pretty interesting one time. So if I had to imagine one traditional sport kind of climbing the ranks and getting up there as we move on here in the next decade or two, I'd imagine it's going to be FIFA. Uh, but as you mentioned, uh, you know, for right now it's those fantasy sports. And I think it's due to the internet bringing together a culture that up until the internet wasn't around, wasn't able to come together as much outside of an arcade. Well, now I can sit at home and play my video games and connect with people across the, really the world. And we can talk about the esports that happen. We can talk about how cloud nine did against Fnatic or how G2 is working, um, to defeat SKT and all those things. And the internet really brings that community uh, together as well as streaming on the internet. So it really is based around that internet, such as the driving force behind these fantasy games. Yeah. And just kind of going off those teams you mentioned, it is really interesting that these teams have their own footprint that if you mention them on social media, there's like an instant connection with other people that are fans of those teams. Oh, absolutely. Even in, um, you know, even when I'm out, I, I always have a, for my welcome back, um, uh, PowerPoint for my students or get to know me. I have a cloud nine symbol on there. That's my favorite esport organization. And 
this was the first year that I had a student go, oh, you like Cloud9? I like Cloud9 too. And so if I wear a Cloud9 shirt around, maybe out in the town, people will start to notice. So we're starting to see it um, out in the public and off the internet a little bit more. Students are starting to know what I'm talking about. Uh, people are starting to know what I'm talking about and create that kind of instant uh, fandom friend, you know, that we see if I'm wearing a Packer shirt or down the street and such. It's at like a hipster level that if you wear it, you connect with certain people, it's awesome. But then maybe in five years, it'll blow up so much that the hipsterness will disappear. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. So we'll see if it gets to that. Yeah. So, and, and allow me to indulge here of yesteryear for me, but like, is Goldeneye an eSport? Is there like, is, is there that classic game? I'm assuming Mario Kart is on eSport. Yeah, the most it would be the most recent Mario Kart. We see um, not so many retro games be considered uh, eSport or have the structure to be considered eSport. Um, GoldenEye is what we call a first-person shooter, and so that kind of is Counter-Strike Go, Call of Duty, for those that are familiar. Um, James Weiner is pretty big into Call of Duty, and no, he's a professor of sport management at uh, Tampa University. Shout he, out to James. Yep. Shout out to my buddy, James. He actually writes articles for an esport organ for an esport journalist, uh, or esport, um, news blog about kind of the, they just went through a big thing where they did, um, franchising. So instead of having teams, uh, compete to be in the top league, the major league, if you will, they now have a set 10 teams and how much that costs to get into that league and such. Um, so, I'm trying to remember your original question, but, oh yeah, uh, Call of Duty. Um, yeah, so that's kind of, first person shooter is what would be a Call of Duty of today. So Call of, um, and such, or the Golden Eye of today. So yeah, I know. That's what I've always thought, because I want to say it was like fairly recent, I was able to play uh, Golden Eye again. I did right before I left Lubbock, I played with a good friend of mine there. He had it hooked up on his new TV and it looked terrible. Yeah. And I'm sure part of that is nostalgia, but also, I've realized some of those Nintendo 64 games were really built uh, to be a, what is it, a CRT television set mm. or like a tube TV. And yeah. when you put them on the new age LCDs, they look terrible. Um, so I felt like uh, it was some nostalgia from a viewership quality, but it still is, I could definitely see how there'd be challenges. But you're right. Mario Kart's a good example of Mario Kart. There's plenty of them. Uh, well, I remember the Nintendo 64 version. I'm sure there's been many iterations since then that have fit on that would make it a lot easier to become an eSport. But maybe there's that's one small potential growth area as eSport becomes more established. Maybe you will start to see platforms or and like data engineers go in and actually redesign those games to fit and be able to be used in the current eSport platforms. Yeah, they actually just did that with StarCraft. And StarCraft is... Oh, yeah is considered probably the first real esport uh, that came on the oh. scene. Yeah, that was a big one and was still going pretty well up until um, two or three years ago. But that one was considered the first one. And then, you know, obviously, as you mentioned, the graphics weren't as good in the 90s as they are today. So they actually, what they do is they called remastered it. So they made it, they updated all the graphics, um, made a few kind of quality of life changes. And it was getting, it was a little bit, it had a spike in popularity for a second. Um, they brought out all the old StarCraft players to play and it was a lot of fun. But at the end of the day, it was, um, you know, the stuff that we're seeing today with Battle Royale and these um, graphics that we're seeing today and the mechanics um, of what you can do and what big plays there are. It just wasn't the same on StarCraft as it is like a League of Legends or a Counter-Strike Go. Correct. And so also talking about some important factors, I have noticed when I've watched some of these eSport events that some of these leagues have some type of relegation built in or some other level of competition. Uh, can you speak to that at all? Absolutely. About three years ago, we saw um, these leagues really start to shift from that kind of relegation and promotion to more of a franchise model. Uh, so, uh, Overwatch was the first to say, Overwatch is interesting for a couple of reasons. Um, the, the, I think is really fascinating is they said, um, we want to be city based. So they have the, uh, Philadelphia fusion, I believe they have the, um, London Spitfire. And so these teams are built, are 
created in these cities, but they're not actually living there. They're all based in Los Angeles, but they have the name London Spitfire on there, which is really bizarre, but it was, an, it was a move to get some buy-in from the cities across the globe. Now with that, because they didn't want to have to continuously get new city or come up with new cities and logos, they said, all right, you have to be a franchise. You have a buy-in of 30 to $50 million in order to get into the league. And if you can't afford that, well, you're not part of it. So they were the first to do it. We saw League of Legends do that as well. They used to have a strict, um, you know, here's 10 teams in the league. The bottom three um, basically fight the um, top three from the next league down. And those teams get to go in if they win. And those teams get knocked out if they lose. Now, they also switched over to franchise. I think I saw that there was um, a team owned the uh, Bucks, the Milwaukee Bucks, the Golden State Warriors, and the Houston Rockets all kind of bought a team for that franchising at roughly $20 million to $30 million. And okay. the big part of that was they just wanted stability. These leagues want stability. It's not uh, – they don't want – sponsors – are much more willing to be on board if they know a team's going to be in there for the long haul. Uh, they, you know, they don't want to spot, they don't want to throw big money at a team if they're in jeopardy of being relegated and not being seen by hundred or 200,000 people on a Saturday. So that was a big push to say, we need franchising. We need to have the stability. So people know we'll be in the league for the next five to 10 years. So we can grab those sponsors. We can also then upgrade our infrastructure with coaches, with academy teams, which are kind of the minor league teams for the major leagues. Uh, and really, that's where you saw this big change, this big shift in esport towards franchising. Now, as I mentioned, James Weiner, Dr. James Weiner has a nice article on Call of Duty with it uh, to see the positives and negatives. For some leagues, it does work. For some leagues, it doesn't work. But for those big leagues, it's a big moneymaker, and it's really paid off for them. We've just seen huge increases in the eSport, um, the content they're putting out in terms of now they have podcasts and review videos and um, kind of classic throwback games as well. Uh, we've seen a lot of increase because of that added money into it due to franchising. And so how you were talking about this relegation, because obviously popular in European soccer, you have relegation. So it's been somewhat integrated here. How, how are those second leagues set up? Like, how is it even decided what is the second best League of Legends league that would be able to provide the teams that get promoted up to the top league? So we've seen what the Riot Games, which um, owns League of Legends, they're the ones that said, okay, if you want to be in, if you want to have a franchise in our League of Legends uh, LCS, the League Championship Series, which is a very, very popular esport scene. I think I was um, watching the championship a couple weekends ago between Cloud9 and Team Liquid, and there was upwards of 300,000 people watching at one time. And so they said, hey, if you want to be a part of this, if you want to have 100,000 to 300,000 viewers, you have to to have 10 people on your team, five um, for your regular team and five for your academy team. So you have to be able to afford those salaries. Now, the salaries for the academy guys are probably somewhere between – couple 10,000s, you know, 20, 30,000 for the main guys. It's, I saw one guy getting $1 million. That's the report I heard of the most uh, recent. Yeah. So we're seeing it really has some drastic changes. So the league of, so Riot Games, which owns League of Legends, of course, they said, you got to have room for 10 people. You got to have the salaries to pay these 10 people. And then they, what Riot did was actually put in an academy league so that the academy league plays not simultaneously, but right after the regular um, major league, uh, the LCS. So what happens then is they have this built-in competition. They have an academy playoff and championship. So these teams are, these players are also getting experience playing on a stage, which gives the really helps out the uh, entire league benefit because then there's more depth to it. And it's not just a handful of good players, but we're starting to see teams have most of their team is actually pretty good improving the overall quality of the league. So it was really, um, and I want to say Overwatch does the same thing. They've got their Academy League um, so that when we see it done right, it's when the the parent company, the eSport company says, okay, we, if you're going to be a part of the franchise, you got to have the funds to support having two teams and we're going to create that Academy League. Now um, Call of Duty does it a little bit differently, I believe. Um, and there's some other leagues where it's just kind of the de facto that if you 
want to be seen or if you want to get noticed on a team, you kind of have to stream and then maybe you can play some amateur. Someone will put on an amateur tournament one weekend. You know, you or I decide, hey, let's go together and let's put together a GoldenEye tournament for fun and invite teams of five people to play um, or invite teams of three people to play against each other and that'll be our tournament. That's how you could be noticed. So when it's done right, it's done by the company that owns the major league esport when it's done um when they don't have that support it's done by you know just someone who's really interested in the sport and wants to see it grow and so kind of switching topics a little bit because that was some great background of how are you personally involved with esport absolutely so i actually just recently got hired i will be the hearthstone esport head coach for misericordia university Misericordia University is about 10 miles up the road uh, from Wilkes University here in Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania. So they just started um, a big esport push. They now have three teams. They've got the League of Legends team, the Hearthstone, and the Rocket League esport teams. And they said, hey, we need a coach. I said, hey, I've got some familiarity with the game. I've played it before. So I'm going to be a coach part-time there. So just putting in um, a couple hours per week going up there. But we've already got our turn- first tournament coming up next week. And I've met some- the players so far. And we've got this nice uh, room with these awesome computers and such and you know i've got high praises to say about how the athletic director for misericordia has done this they've done it right they've done it really well really done their research on it and joined this um organization called nace which is the oh man i'm trying to remember what the name of it what the what it stands for but it's this kind of this governing body for um collegiate esports which has over 140 individuals on it an individual um athletic department teams on it so um the national association of collegiate esports so they've got um we're you know we're in competition against the likes of oklahoma missouri north texas wagner college and so i'll be doing that this upcoming fall and spring Interesting. And I know you just mentioned big schools, but maybe putting my higher education hat on, I have kind of noticed that some smaller schools, um, I don't want to necessarily tie to association, but like NAIA schools or small, small schools, colleges, they seem to be more eager jumping in and providing some type of official association with athletics or having a program. Um, and part of it is maybe they're trying to capture where things are moving uh, digitally in like in the future, but it is kind of interesting that it seems to be the smaller schools that are providing more official and sanctioned support than the bigger uh, prominent universities. Is that true or do you feel differently about that? Oh yeah, absolutely true. Um, definitely your NAIA division three and division two. Um, all of those are very, have a lot of esport teams, division one, not so much. Um, I think that's due to a number of reasons. Uh, as you know, you kind of alluded to these schools trying to jump in um, and try to start something before it really takes off and try to be the name in NAIA or division two or division three that is the esport team that's really dominating the competition, dominating the likes of Oklahoma's and Georgia Southern's and Georgia State's now. Now, another part of it, and I can tell you from my athletic director standpoint, is recruiting potential students to the university. That was a big one. He said, you know, I want you to be here and I want you to recruit. I want our eSport program to bring in about 30 students per year that wouldn't have come to our school otherwise. So a lot of these schools that may be small and private that are uh, enrollment based, it's a strategy for them to get an esport program. And it really does work. We've already gotten interest from five to 10 students who weren't considering Misericordia before that are now interested because they can come and be a part of the athletic department. So a number of reasons why these smaller schools are getting in on it. Um, and so that's, you know, where it's cool to see, but we'll see where, if the bigger schools pick up on it as we, you know, hit up the next five, 10 years. Yeah. And I'd be remiss to not bring up one of the issues I think esport is having is it's um, it has gender issues in the sense of most rosters are heavily male dominated. And so when a school, a smaller school try creates an esport program, it essentially just creates, I don't want to say an unfair advantage. It's definitely unfair. I don't know if advantage is the right word, but essentially it creates uh, a mechanism that's going to bring in predominantly male students and whether that provides scholarship funding or whatever. But I think that is something that eSport is going to have to work on moving forward. Oh, absolutely. Um, just looking at the overall 
eSport League and what's going on there um, and just eSports in general, it is, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, but there, there's a lot of misogyny in it. And so um, built in it automatically and there's a lot of stereotypes of it's just young males playing eSports and such. And so that kind of, you know, in our meeting, we had 20 people that were interested this year in the eSport program. Zero of them were females. And now we did have one woman want to be part of the social media and help manage the teams. Uh, she didn't necessarily want to compete, but I told the coach or the athletic director, I said, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm going to be doing all I can to get more uh, women and more representation um, on these teams. And he said, you know, I'm all for that. Just uh, good luck. So um, I think there's a lot of stereotypes we need to get over a lot of barriers that need to be broken. And I think that that is one big part of it. Um, I, I believe the Holden article, it's a journal of legal aspects of sport, uh, did a really good job on kind of the potential policy um, issues that could be occurring with eSport. I think one of them was title nine. So there's definitely research on that standpoint of it, but I think that you're right. It is a big hurdle moving forward. Yeah, and I totally agree. One of my first thoughts on that is thinking about Title IX, especially as organization or universities are becoming more willing to have some type of official esport program. Then it becomes a question of resource adequate or uh, resources that are provided to the program. And then does it become a male sport, female co-ed program? I think that's the one long-term benefit of esport is you could have. Uh, it's a lot easier to envision a co-ed type program that would make things actually better in the long term for title nine but with the structure it has right now uh and societal structure just you have predominantly men in there and that is a problem so if it just becomes like a club sport that's different but yes totally agree on the title nine and that kind of leads to something because um kind of jumping ahead a little bit thinking about sport management research to focus on the academic side of this conversation is what research have we seen within sport management on esport? Absolutely. I would, uh, if for people that are pretty unfamiliar about esport, the definitions, its relationship to traditional sport, check out the uh, Funk Pizzo Baker uh, article on 2018 in Sport Management Review. That one's a really good one. They've got impl impl uh, implications for sport management section on there. They've got some legal issues that it could see. So that's a really good short article that really gives the just kind of a good background on that and what it does mean for sport management. Uh, Pizzo and Funk, two of the art, two of the authors again, they did a good one. Um, why do people watch eSport? And so you know, the results re revealed that it was socialization opportunities, athlete performance, and value Curious achievement sounds strikingly similar to traditional sport, uh, but that one's a good marketing one. Um, and we're going to see a lot more marketing. Why do people watch eSport? Why do people become fans moving forward? The Holden one, as I mentioned, was policy considerations and potential litigation in eSport. And then the Cunningham, uh, he also had an article uh, previewing eSport and sport management review. Those are kind of the big ones that I was able to find so right now. Uh, there's a few ones from the early 2000s that may or may not be relevant. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. But um, when I was doing my research site, as I mentioned, I did one for SMA in 2014. It was really tough to find. I think I had two or three articles at the time. Now I wish I'm kind of kicking myself because Dr. Schreffler and I did this study and I didn't do it properly. I just kind of used an instrument without checking it. And so nothing really <laughs> came of it. Um, but man, that would have been a good one. But um, I think, you know, and we can talk about future research a little bit later, but I think we're starting to see it grow a little bit more. I know there's one that's out there on esport and gender um, that could be coming out here in a bit, but um, as of right now, it's a pretty wide open field. Uh, so I'm interested to see where it goes. Yeah. And so kind of speaking to that, for those that are looking to take a, a dive into esports stuff, Sport Management Review has an issue. It doesn't look like it's a special issue for esports, but they do have at least I see four articles within their looks like volume 21 issue one. It came out early 2018 and it hits on two of the articles that you just mentioned. One is from Cunningham and co-authors talking about esport and what exactly is esport and then how is that involved within sport management? And the other one in there, you mentioned Funk, Pizzo and Baker. Just talking about esport education, like what, how that falls under there and then also research opportunities. So I kind of like those two together. They dovetail well together. If you are 
InShed and eSports, especially jumping off from a research standpoint, those two articles together could be really good in finding some areas of growth. But I've also noticed there's been, I haven't seen a specific article in Journal Sport Management, but there has been, I want to say like four or five articles from I found that are at least talking about how their topic relates to eSports. So there's even an article that was in, I think, either the most recent JSM or the one before that, where they do talk about some association with their findings related to outside of traditional sports, such as esport. And so it is kind of a growing area. I like how you mentioned the John Holden article, which is um, essentially looking at the legal ramifications because there's all kinds of pieces there, um, especially I know John talks a ton on Twitter about gambling. There's also a whole bunch of association with how could gambling get integrated into sport and then how would that essentially be governed? That is beyond what things are right now because right now we're seeing this uh, full embrace almost across the country of sport gambling again and legalizing that, how it's going to affect colleges and all that stuff. But now it's going to eSport is a whole nother frontier where you could see gambling affected there and how that would be governed, uh, controlled, by the organization, all that stuff. So, so the, yeah, those are some really solid articles. Yeah, absolutely agree. Um, and so kind of thinking about that, where do you see, and this might tie into a little bit of talking about topics that'll be kind of ripe to, to move forward. How do you see esports changing in the future? Absolutely. So a big one, um, I j- just pretty easily, uh, more acceptance in society. I really think that that's pretty given balls rolling too far and too fast for it to kind of stop and reverse. So we're going to see it really accepted by society more. In fact, I actually saw, um, an article on uh, a Reddit subthread called not the onion, um, which are true headlines that may sound like a joke, but it was, uh, England decides, uh, to use, uh, esports in grade school to teach students life lessons and so they're actually integrating it into um the, the elementary and middle school uh because of its lessons so we're seeing esport actually now put into uh children's growth and learning and being socialized so absolutely more acceptance in society um so that's a big one i think where we're going to see some contention now is because esports and these leagues are so young they haven't quite figured out how to monetize and so, as I mentioned before, Twitch, YouTube, and Mixer are all free to go watch anytime you want. I can go on YouTube and I can watch uh, the game that happened a year ago, six years ago for free. Now, I can't do that necessarily with an NFL game. I can watch highlights, but I can't watch the full thing. So, these games, these leagues, these tournaments are relatively free to watch. So, what's going to happen when... League of Legends says, okay, you can watch, but it's going to cost you $10 a month for the streaming services to watch. So that's a big part of it. Um, when, when are they going to start monetizing all that? It's going to find, we're going to still see closer ties to traditional sport. I know for the SMA folk, you got to go down in Dallas, I believe that was last year and tour an esport facility. Um, we're, uh, Mark Cuban is a big proponent of um, esports, as are all other NBA teams and a few NFL teams as well. The Crafts got involved, the uh, Rams owners and Mets owners did as well. Um, we're going to see some ties between esports and traditional sports, um, like the NBA. So they created that 2K League. They had 17 teams, um, like the Milwaukee Bucks created a 2K League. They had a draft um, that increased up to 21 teams in 2019, just all these NBA teams having these kind of sister 2K leagues. And they're already adding one for 2020 um, as well. And they actually do have a draft and they bring out Adam Silver and he shakes the hand of these gamers and they put on the uh, hat as well. They actually last year had drafted um, the first female athlete uh, for their 2K league, which was pretty awesome. So that's going to be really interesting to see how those teams really work with the traditional sports organizations like the Milwaukee Bucks and the Miami Heat because I envision a world where the Milwaukee Bucks play in their arena on a Thursday and then on a Friday the Milwaukee Bucks 2K League plays on the same court now it's not the athletes going out there and playing it's the out it's the athletes in the stadium uh, playing virtually basically you get to see it on the court happen in front of you. That would take some virtual reality, but that's another way for now facilities to be used more than just once um, every so often. All of a sudden we've got a traditional sport happen on Thursday. Hey, your ticket can um, get you to come back for the e-sport event that's happening Friday night and such like that. 
definitely closer ways. Um, and then for the NCA, uh, uh, for the NCA specifically, what are they going to do? Uh, you know, in 2019 here in May, NCA Board of Governors decided we're not going to be governing and holding championships for collegiate esports. So my athletic director said to me, you know, we're going to treat this like an NCA sport. It's not an NCA sport, but when it becomes an NCA sport, when they start seeing the money come in and they decide, hey, we should be ha- having esport under our umbrella, then it's going to have some rule changes. But the NCAA, like, how's that going to work? Because tournaments are still paying thousands of dollars. I think a Dota tournament had like a $2.1 million um, championship giveaway uh, and such up to $10 million at one point. Um, what about streaming? How are we going to regulate streaming? So if I'm a student athlete and I'm on the Misericordia eSports and all of a sudden I go and I go home and decide to stream because I'm a popular player, all of a sudden am I making money from that? Um, how is that going to work with NCAA eligibility? So I think there's a lot of questions surrounding the NCAA and how they're going to kind of work with eSports. But that's something that's going to be really interesting moving forward for the NCAA because uh, that's a really – could make a lot of um, could make a lot of sense for them. They just got to figure those things out um, on how to kind of govern it as well. And then it is going to be figuring out how to get people um, like you. Uh, I know we've talked about this in the past where I actually played League of Legends. I watch it constantly, so I know what's going on. But, you know, I shared it with you and you're like, this is interesting. But I don't know what's going on. You know, are we seeing these esports, these fantasy based esports, a little hard to get into because we don't know exactly what's going on. There's just a lot of bright lights and colors and people moving really fast. So how are they going to get non esports or non game players to actually watch esport if it's really tough to find uh, to see what's going on now i've seen some things that people do um to get around that but it's going to be difficult for people that aren't that don't know esport to just kind of watch and be like oh yeah this was a lot of fun um so how are these games going to be able to attract those consumers or potential spectators yeah and just like you talked about we we have chatted previously about the challenge I think esport has in connecting people to what are now the most popular games with people that aren't as familiar or have a generational connection with them. Where I have watched League of Legends, I can tell there's a lot going on. There is deep strategy that's tough for me to see. I can tell that every character has different um, strengths and weaknesses that each player's chosen. And there is, I don't want to say downtime, but there is a lot of inactive time. And then there will be a flurry of activity within 30 seconds. I can tell something vital has happened, but it's tough to envision um, what happened. Was there a blunder by one team? Did one team seize the moment right? All that stuff. Where other games like first-person shooter games, traditional sport games, people have an experience or background, or I feel like the strategy and goal is much simpler, and it's easier to jump right into that, even if you've never played like a first-shooter game. To understand what's going on, obviously, if you've never played baseball and you went in and started playing MLB, I don't know, 2K or whatever the game is right now, that that might be a little bit trickier to, to understand. But obviously, there's a much greater experience there with League of Legends. You probably only experience that type of gameplay playing League of Legends. And so that will be a great business question, whether that's marketing or behavior, event management, on how to present a palatable product to someone that's unfamiliar with that so they can become more involved, interested, become associated with a team, so on and so forth. And and I will say on that point, League of Legends has done a good job of expanding their brand to kind of capture that. Uh, for those that are interested in saying, what is he talking about with League of Legends? What does it all mean? There's a Netflix show called Seven Days Out, and it's the world's biggest events. And they basically go seven days out of a big event, like they have the Kentucky Derby and the Westminster Dog Show. Their last episode is on League of Legends, and I usually show it to my class. It's a really good kind of build up, and it shows you kind of how it's come, and they've got people like Rick Fox, former Laker great on there talking about his connection to it and such. They give you a really good overview of what it looks like um, and what it is. So I check that out. The other piece, um, even, you know, we saw HBO, I sent you the other day, the show Ballers with The Rock. They have an episode des- uh, devoted to League of Legends. So we're seeing, season, correct? Yeah, yeah, it's an episode within the season. Gotcha. 
Um, and so that's just kind of another way to get their name out there to let people know, Hey, look, this is a thing. This is a real thing. And tying it to, you know, Netflix, maybe someone will binge watch that or ballers, which really traditionally isn't, uh, their demographic I'd imagine, but maybe they can get someone to say, Hey, this is really cool. Oh, this is a real thing and check it out. So we're seeing these games start to kind of make those connections with cultural, uh, with to try to be culturally relevant so that people get a little taste and can kind of see, okay, let me try to research this a little bit more. Cause if you know, you don't have that will to research, it's going to take a long time to get into, um, you know, and such. So that's some pretty interesting stuff to see these esports start to get into mainstream society. Yeah. And I think it's an important topic because obviously sport management very much in its adolescence as a field. So, didn't really have to do any research about, hey, how do we teach someone uh, to become a baseball fan or basketball fan or football fan, even though I'm sure that stuff is out there. That's a real problem for eSport and any emerging type sport, whether, uh, what is it, spike ball and some other things that are relatively new and how to educate new consumers on participating or being a viewer. And I think those are going to be some really interesting topics that can be covered in the future for those looking to study eSport. Absolutely. I think one of the biggest ones um, in terms of what should, what type of research is out there and ready for someone to go. Um, I think one of the big one is just looking at fandom because outside of Overwatch, there's no other team that is geographically based. My favorite team is Cloud9. It's not the Los Angeles Cloud9. It's not the Chicago Cloud9. It's just Cloud9. So they don't, I, there's no geographical reason for me to like them. It's, you know, for me, it was a player. It was a team. Okay. What happens when those players and teams move on? Am I still a fan of the team or am I going to go and follow those players or that team? So just that fandom is going to be really interesting to see how it kind of continues to evolve as we start to see esports um, grow here. And I think that's a really good area for research. Yeah, no, I think that's totally great. Uh, anything else we need to cover, Sam, or do we, do we hit every point? Um, we hit about pretty much everything. I know that there's some other, um, if they're looking for empirical research, um, pretty much every sub-discipline within sport, marketing, communication, governance, um, even society, uh, e-sport and society, uh, all those are really, you know, looking easy areas to get some research in if you really are interested in this um, and such. But, you know, I think it's a, it's an emerging field. I'm glad that you provided time for it. I encourage people um, and professors and um, faculty to include it in your classes, uh, not only just to expose people to it, but students really enjoy having these conversations. It can be as easy as, is this a sport or not? Or, okay, if you're a sport organization like the Milwaukee Bucks, how do you utilize this 2k team to make some more money or to bring in some more fans so i'd encourage you i've done one for finance um that was a really fun conversation to have with students um and such and i've done one with communication how do we look at it from social media um standpoint and such so i'd encourage other faculty members that are listening to try to figure out a way to build it into your curriculum into a class or two within your uh, um courses because it, it's a good conversation that the students know of. They absolutely know what this is and there are some of them are fans of it and they think it's going to be important moving forward. So that's all I got there. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I want to thank Sam for joining us here and having this conversation eSport. Like I said, I think it's great. It's coming through in our field right now. It's one of those few things you can kind of catch almost ride the wave now if you wanted to. I also would say that I'm guessing we either I have already just graduated some of our first sport management PhDs people or they're in the pipe right now will be coming out for jobs now I think it, they couldn't have timed this any better to be hitting this head-on because there's so many topics so much I don't want to say low-hanging fruit but lots of stuff there but also lots of work on the theoretical side to kind of establish it within main theoretical connections within sport management so I think this was time really well for us but again I want to thank Sam for joining us um, I know it's the beginning of fall semester for classes, things will be busy, but, and thanks again for all you listeners for joining us here for this latest episode of State of Sport Management, and we hope to have you for the next one.